Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. Before we get stuck into this US Open special, I want to thank our supporting partner for the month and that's We Are One Composites. We've got a super generous offer for you. We Are One make awesome wheels and that's a fact. It's amazing to see the amount of support that they have as a relatively small brand from their loyal customers who've experienced just how great the wheels are and also how robust they are. The ride quality of We Are One wheels is a biggie for me. They're accurate and they go where you point them, but they have enough compliance that they can stick to off-camber lines and don't feel every little obstacle on the trail trying to ping you offline. I'm currently running a Faction 29er up front and the Union 275 in the rear, and they have needed literally zero maintenance. They're still as tight and true as the day that they arrived, and I genuinely cannot say that about any other wheels that I've ever owned. We Are One are offering downtime listeners a very generous 10% off any Revolution wheel set, including rim only, for the month of September. All you need to do is to head to weareonecomposites.com and use the code DOWNTIMEWHEELING2022 at the checkout. That's downtime with a capital D, no space, followed by the word wheeling, W-H-E-E-L-I-N-G, no space, then 2022 over at weareonecomposites.com. Head to their site now and check out their range of awesome wheels. While you're here, don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. There's buttons to help you get that done over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Merch is available if you want to help support the show. That's over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. Also, head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP and check out our incredible print project, which is called Downtime EP and is made in collaboration with the team over at Misspent Summers. It's a biannual piece of mountain bike history that takes the guests and topics of the podcast, expands on them and brings them into a lovely printed format featuring words and imagery from mountain biking's most talented creators. You can get single copies of the back issues or you can save yourself a bit of money by treating yourself to an annual subscription over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. All the links you need for all of that stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. And you can also get in touch and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook by heading to at Downtime Podcast. All right, the US Open is a huge part of the American mountain bike scene. Join me and Nika Mullally as we chat with the man behind the US Open, Clay Harper. Hear about his background and what drew him into race organisation. We chat about the concept behind the US Open and how the team have built it up over the years. Find out how they attract some of the biggest names in the sport and hear the specifics of the 2022 event from Nico himself. All right, without further ado, here's Nico and Clay. Clay Harper and Nico Mullally, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. Clay, we'll go to you first. How's things? You've just come off the back of a pretty hectic couple of weeks, I guess, uh, putting together and running the US Open for 2022. How's it all feeling now? Well, I'm exhausted, but happy. It was great. Um, the event was it was awesome. Like Everything went off really well. We actually played the best game of chicken with Mother Nature ever. Um, <laughs> we dodged heavy rain and got our finals in. And I've been cleaning up still with my crew here for the past three days. And every single time that we get out there and get set up to put all of the event assets away, the sky opens up and it downpours on us. So I don't have much voice left and I'm tired, but I'm really happy to be here. Good stuff, man. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully that voice lasts for the next hour or so. <laughs> and Nico, how's it going with you? No off-season rest for you quite yet, hey? Yeah, not quite yet. We uh, The US Open was a big event on my calendar. It's it's always been um, being an American racer and a guy from the East Coast. Having the race back in Killington was awesome this year and, a, and an awesome way to wrap up the season. So yeah, great, great trip up there and just got back last night. 
Good stuff, man. Well, let's, uh, let's Clay, before we get stuck into talking about the US Open specifically, get a little bit of background on you yourself. So wind the clock back a bit for us and tell us a bit initially about how you got into mountain biking in the first place. Well, how I actually got into mountain biking. Um, I started riding a bike at five and like my father pushed me down the hill on my bike and I figured it out and I, um, I, I was just hooked. Everything with wheels and bikes have always been my, my outlet. Um, I grew up kind of isolated from the industry, um, just riding in my yard with my local friends in the neighborhood and then um, got into racing later on. I actually didn't race a race till I was a, a downhill race. Till I was 19. Okay. And it was um, Platicill. <laughs> I don't know if you know Platicill or not, but that's a Nico could elaborate on that. Platicill was part of the fabric of the beginning of downhill in the US and um, absolutely wild tracks. Like we rode the craziest tracks there. Um, but it was, it was just this thing that was the center of my life. And um, I wound up racing collegiate at UMass Amherst University of Massachusetts. And was doing really well and, and actually got signed into a, um, a, a pro team, Iron Horse Bikes, before Sam Hill. I was like, <laughs> Iron Horse Bikes V1. Now they were like, hey, let's figure out how to have a team. Let's get some local pros and then we'll go get the big ones. And um, it was it was pretty good time though. Like it, was, it was really magical time. A lot of the people that were involved then are still in the industry. Um, and and that's, that's like how I got actually into downhill. And then I, when I became pro level, you know, I was never going to beat Steve Pete, but I was, you know, could win some regional races. What, uh, what era was that then? We're talking kind of late nineties or. Yep. So, um, that would be 90, probably I, I raced like 98 through 2002, I would uh -huh. say in that, in that era. Yeah. And then so in 2002, I um, had a couple injuries and was just really discouraged. Um, and that was kind of, you know, like you asked me your question, but then I could tell you what happened then. Well, I was, I was just going to say, what were you doing alongside that? You, you mentioned it was a collegiate thing. So you were studying at school, right? Studying is a strong word. Um, <laughs> I was riding my bike at school. <laughs> uh, I don't, I have a marketing degree. Um, so I, I was, basically racing. I graduated school and I started working in the trades. Um, you know, I was actually working at a glass shop at the time, installing doors and windows. And during college, I had been lucky enough to work at Mountain Creek when they opened their bike park. Um, they were owned by IntraWest, the same company that owns Whistler back in, in the day. And so they wanted to open a mountain bike park. I was a local kid who rode. My sister worked at the mountain. They hired me as a trail builder. And so that was... 99 and 2000 in 2000 the lodge burned to the ground and the whole place was just like in panic mode they canceled all summer programs and closed the bike park and i just went on with my life and was doing you know riding bikes racing a little and then started working and in 2003 um was when i decided i was done racing just because it was discouraging and there was no prize money there was it was kind of a weird time in the industry in the us it was like the beginning of the end of norba and so um i went to mountain creek with a plan to lease the mountain the lodge and the chairlift from 
you know, basically April to October and start a bike park, our own private bike park, um, open to the public. And that's kind of, that's how I really launched everything. Like that's where it started. And that year we, we, we started it. Um, it was called Diablo Freeride Park. And the reason it was called Diablo Freeride Park was my brother-in-law at the time was my partner in the business. And, um, we were in Mount, uh, Mount Tremblant, Canada on a ski trip. And we were in a bar called Los Diablos and we wrote this business plan on a cocktail napkin. <laughs> and then we had the whole, like we had everything figured out. We were ready to open and we had never made a name. And that cocktail napkin was still sitting there. And it was like, why don't we call it Diablo Freeride Park? And, you know, Nico can probably attest to this. I don't know what it was like in Europe at the time, but in the U.S., downhill was like, it was heavy metal. There was no women. There was no children. It was just like dudes and mountain dew and like let's point it straight down the hill and try to hit every rock we can right like it was just such a different time so an aggressive name like diablo free ride park actually made sense um people loved it and it was it, i'd laugh every time i think about the fact that we named it that i laugh um and nothing makes me happier than when i see some old car that still has a sticker on it you know it's it's wild that's cool um, and then that same year we started um we started the u.s open and it was completely organic. I, like I said, I was very discouraged with racing and there was five year age brackets. Um, so there was hundreds of categories. When you go to one of these big races, there was no prize money and it was tough. And, and I already have a chip on my shoulder, just being like a kid from the East coast, a kid from New Jersey. Like we, we Nico can probably attest to it, right? Like you don't have access to the industry when you're from the East coast to the U S yeah. I mean, most everybody's from California. So, um, definitely, isolated then i can imagine now after building all that it's kind of become somewhat more of a hub being in the northeast but before that it wasn't at all yeah yeah and so we were angry you know like honestly the diablo and the u.s open were 100 punk rock in the beginning like it was the biggest middle fingers up to the industry was how it started which is kind of ironic because now i'm like how do we get more kids racing? But the, <laughs> the, um, the, the way the U S open came about was I, like I said, was discouraged and just came up with this idea for a race. I said, I'm going to put up a thousand dollars prize money. We're gonna have two categories and it's, it's just open and amateur and it's going to be a party and a race and through my connection. So I, I just left the iron horse team. And, um, they had gone on to way bigger and better things and they had Bryn Atkinson on the team, but I was still really tight with them. So they agreed to come and bring their pro team. So like that was our anchor and we had this all set up and my, my partner at the time, um, was like, I think we just started the U S open to mountain biking. <laughs> and, and I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? It, isn't there already one? And we looked and there was no U S open to mountain biking. Yeah, we're taking it. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't like corporate. It wasn't like, Hey, we have this name. We need to backfill it with an event. It was, we had an awesome idea for an event and it just happened to be that we could call it that. That's very cool, man. That is very cool. So what, yeah, what did you set out to achieve with the U S open then <clears throat> in that well, first kind of instance? It sounds like it was more <laughs> a big party and a get together than, uh, than I have the kind no of racing side, but. Yeah. I have no idea how we survived the first year. Like I don't understand. Um, 
it, it always is something I actually reach back to because even when things go wrong and things don't work, I remember that like people love the US Open. And I don't know really why, except that maybe people see that I put my entire life into it and I like wear it on my sleeve. And um, it's not done for any of the wrong reasons, even though some now that there's big prize money, some people like to say that, as I was telling you earlier, Chris, like you know, people like to, to, to talk about money and think they think they know the inside of how things work. Uh-huh. But um, that first year, we, we had the race. It was great. Um, the track was horrible, in my opinion. Absolutely horrible. Nico loves the original track. I couldn't stand it. Like it was just straight down a hill, janky rocks. Um, but we threw a party that night. I rented a condo from Mountain Creek. They just finished building these brand new condos. And then we destroyed it like seven, ten thousand dollars worth. Like we destroyed it, like destroyed this condo. There was hundreds of broken beer bottles, like windows broken. The furniture was broken. Um, it was absolutely wild, but it kind of made a mark. Um, somehow I'm forever grateful to the people at Mountain Creek and management for not kicking me out. Uh, they let me pay for it and keep us around. And, um, but it kind of set the precedent for that beginning year. You know, there's a video that circulates around um, from that first U.S. Open, and it's funny. It's it's oh, the writing is so horrible. But the the one thing that always stands out to me is like there's a close up shot of me, and I'm like flipping the birds to the finger or to the to the camera, and it's like we just had attitude. We didn't care what anybody thought. We had no vision of the U.S. Open being successful or going anywhere. We just didn't care. It was just about throwing a party and doing it our way. Uh, but it, that's but it obviously truth. worked, right? It clicked. Somehow it clicked. And then um, it just took off like wildfire after that. And the next couple of years, it just grew. Um, you know, if you, if you look on Roots and Rain, you can see some of the history. I have to get some of the early, early history up there actually put it on the table in front of me because you asked me today because it's hard for me to remember some of those early years. But um, it went really well. Um, but we were a business. We were running the bike park and the U.S. Open was cool and it was fun, but it didn't make sense like it does now. And by 2006, I was basically broke and I had to get out of it because um, – we had started building trails. So we have the bike park, right? Like the bike park is an important part and we're building trails with excavators and that's, what's actually paying for everything. Even though I was making like $7,000 a year and we, um, I just sold my half dirt cheap to my partner and I went and worked in, um, excavating. I was like, all right, I have these skills. I need to make some real money. Started doing driveways and septics and stuff like that. And he took it on, Sean, my, my former partner in the business, he took the US Open to like just this crazy level after that. The dude was a marketing genius. And um, he he always kept controversy in it, you know, right, Nico? Like he just did the craziest stuff. Like he had the Iron Sheik, a pro wrestler there one year who would like was putting G. Atherton in a headlock and tackling <laughs> people. And um, he just did controversial stuff. And I learned so much from him, even though I wasn't part of it at the time, I was watching a lot and I was there and stuff, but, um, it, he ran it very well. Um, then I went and did some other stuff. I actually bought the bike shop that I grew up as a child. They sponsored me when I was a teenager and stuff as a rider, I had an opportunity to buy that bike shop. And then I opened other bike shops and then the economy crashed in 2008, nine here. 
and I went through like, I went through a bankruptcy. I lost everything. And, um, at that time it was just because I had just constantly chased my passion for bikes without really being smart about it at all. Um, and, um, so I, I basically, I got rid of every bike I owned. I wanted nothing to do with it. I stopped talking to all my friends in the bike industry. Um, and that was 2008 or nine. I went and I worked at Morgan Stanley. I put on a cheap ass suit. I drove an hour and a half to work and I let big wig bankers tell me what to do all day. And I was just chasing money and I never got it. I never, never made that money. I was the biggest black sheep ever. And, um, <clears throat> it was really a, just like, it's kind of a, I, I guess I could say dark time in my life, but maybe uh -huh. just kind of ed an educational time in my life. It taught me how to get back to what I love the right way and, and do it right. And in 2000, in parallel to, to me, um, the U.S. Open and Diablo Freeride Park um, was set to run till 2011 with the lease we had set up. And then the mountain changed hands. And so my former partner was unable to renew the lease. So Diablo Freeride Park became Mountain Creek Bike Park. And he took the U.S. Open and tried to move it to... Um, another mountain, but it just wasn't the right time in the industry. I mean, if you know, that period was really weird time. And so he put the U S open just on ice, you know, put it on hiatus. Cause he kind of had some of the same principles as me, where if we can't do it well, we'd rather not do it. And, you know, the past two years I've had opportunities to hold like the U S open cheap or in a different location as, as COVID's happening or as the wildfires were happening. And we just kind of like, if we can't do it right. We don't want to do it. So, so the U S open goes on hiatus in 2011, right around that same time, um, Mark Tremaine, Aaron Chase and Jeff Lenoski, three of my like really close friends from the industry. Mark was the first person we ever hired at Diablo Freeride Park who stayed the whole time and became the terrain park manager for mountain Creek. So he ran all of their snowboard parks and their bike parks once Diablo left those guys just started putting this full court press on me to come back and ride my bike. <laughs> and then, um, Jeff Lenoski and Aaron chase actually built a bike for me and drug me out and made me go dirt jumping. Cause that was always kind of one of my early passions. And I was like, all right, all right, this is kind of cool. But I still didn't want to go. I was like, kind of I had a really hard time getting back into it. Cause like it's semi embarrassing when you fail at something and then just, I just been so scorned by it. Like, I lost everything. You know what I mean? So like, um, then Mark Tremaine drug, he was doing these Thursday night races at mountain Creek and you wear costumes and stuff. And he somehow drug me out. And I have this photo of me, like I'm in this pair of like, I'm just a shitty pair of jeans and, um, a rental helmet on a rental Da Vinci. And he drug me out and, and I think it was like 2012 or 13. I can't remember, drug me out and made me go ride downhill. And I'm telling you a hundred feet into the first run. I was like full bore back in complete <laughs> lifestyle change. Uh, like it was crazy. Um, and it was good. And I'm like really grateful to him for doing that for me. <clears throat> and then I was able to pivot out of my job and move into risk management in the resort world because I now had operational experience and insurance experience. So, um, Mountain Creek hired me and I was running events for them and was the risk manager. 
and immediately behind the scenes the whole time just working to get the U.S. Open property back from my former partner. Um, and it was amicable. Like we got along. There was no bad blood or anything, but he just wasn't sure if he was ready to give it up. Didn't know if he was going to relaunch it. And it took almost five years. And so in 2016, late 2016, um, he, he gave the property back to me because he had moved on to other stuff in his life. And we just, I just immediately started planning to host it at Mountain Creek again in 2017. Um, there's a ton in between there. I'm trying to give you a semi abbreviated version. It's a really long story, but that's kind of how the U S open came and went and came back. And now we have a new hiatus to talk about. So we, wow, that's we, awesome, man. And it's cool. Yeah. It's cool to hear that bikes managed to lure you back in so easily once you, uh, once you got back on a downhill bike, that's really cool to hear. Nico, share with us a little bit of your kind of early memories of the US Open and how it fits into your your life and your career. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that Clay has done has has laid the groundwork for for me getting into racing. I Diablo Freeride Park was the closest place that I could go ride as a kid. It was the first bike park I ever went to, and I went there in two thousand five for the first time. So probably right about the time where. Clay had done all this hard work and was getting burnt out. I got to go there and experience all that fun stuff that he made. <laughs> and I rode there um, as a as a kid so often. My dad would drive me up to a friend of mine lived across the street, and I'd stay with him when I was 13 or 14, um, and I'd ride until my bike fell apart, and then I'd call my dad and tell him to come pick me up again. So we'd <laughs> do like 30 runs a day. The gondola at Mountain Creek is so quick. And, um, for some reason I, like there was all these really fun jump trails there. It's why the bike park was so popular. And that was pretty new at that time. There wasn't a lot of machine built like flow trails or jump trails in bike parks in, in the early two thousands. And I think that's what attracted people to mountain Creek. But for some reason we would go and try to ride the hardest trails on the mountain. Every run, we would like stay away from those fun jump trails and just, can I interrupt for one second? So there <laughs> yeah. is a trail at mountain Creek that I built. That's called deceit. I hate that trail so much. And I, it, it was the top half of the first us open track. And I had this spot where we wanted to build this awesome trail. And it was, it started off with amazing dirt, a few berms, this big rock roll, and then just pure hell. Um, the U.S. Open peeled right off of it. But if you stayed straight on that trail, you could barely find the trail. It's like just riding through a boulder field. And I think you're talking about Evan Gilardi, right? Like you and Evan used to ride that damn trail. I don't understand. Like Evan still talks about riding that trail with you. You couldn't pay me to ride that trail and I built it. It's horrible. <laughs> we, we would ride that trail and, and basically all of the natural trails at Mountain Creek are just so raw and rocky. There's not much, lo there's no loam or soft dirt on that mountain. And we would go and, and within the trail, we would also try to ride the hardest line on it for some reason. It seems like nowadays, like kids want to cut every turn and ride the fun, smooth stuff. And for some reason, we thought it was cool to just run over the, the worst possible things with our bike and we'd <laughs> go there and eat lunch on the gondola so we could do more runs and do 30 runs a day if we could. Um, so I rode Mountain Creek a ton. And at that time, the U.S. Open had gained a ton of momentum. Big names like Sam Hill were coming and racing every year. And 
my first year racing, I got to go and compete in amateur category at the U S open and watch these top pros from around the world race. And honestly, it sparked my interest. Like it made me fall in love with downhill racing, watching these guys and seeing the monster energy iron horse pit with Sam Hill and Brendan there racing. It was so cool to see. And, um, yeah, it, it was a big part of me getting into downhilling. Um, in 2008, I won as an amateur at the U S open. And back then it was just like Clay said, two categories. You're an amateur or pro. There wasn't the 20 different podiums that we have now for, for everybody to get a trophy. It was, um, winning the amateur category at the U S open was really big. Like it was an important thing. And as a junior, you raced against all the other top juniors in the country. There was no age. So I was 15 then, and I got to race that. And now it's separated into multiple age brackets. But, um, the amateur U S open was a really big like that. And the junior national championship were the two big things you could do as a junior. And, um, yeah, no eight, I, I won that. And it was, definitely one of the best memories of, of a successful race weekend that I have, um, going back that long. And I think having that made me think like, this is so cool, this feeling, I want to do it again. And it, um, it definitely made me want to race downhill a lot more. And, and it made you win an iron horse Sunday, which you, (laughs) which you were obsessed with. Yeah. Those bikes back in the day were (laughs) Sam was winning on them. The the geometry was pretty um, forward thinking for that time. (laughs) Like the prizes were crazy. Like the prize money for pro, even then, like winning five grand was was not heard of. And then winning the amateur, getting a a complete downhill bike on the podium, like that was so cool to to win that bike. Um, We'll have to share that picture with Chris of you on the podium at 15 it's really yeah cool. and and like looking back at it it's like richie rude was was in second or third like it was it was pretty competitive between the the kids that were fast in the u.s at that time the juniors yeah it's it's amazing the names that have come through the u.s open that are out now all big names and it's tough to think about like what where we'd be right now if we didn't have those gaps you know the gap between 2011 or 2012 to 2017 and then the 2020 and 2022 gaps you know it's so hard to keep the momentum going with these gaps um but it's crazy when you look at those old podiums it's like brendan Fairclough as a kid up there like all these just big names as kids up there it is yeah super impressive some of the people that you've had visit over the years is is incredible talk talk us then through a little bit of the kind of the more recent format of the us open from 2017 <clears> onwards <throat> you you mentioned another hiatus you had i guess tough times with covid and then followed up with wildfires which led to a, a yeah i guess pretty late cancellation of last year's event it's not been easy running for you hey no i sometimes i wonder how we're still standing um <laughs> but it's it is just it's pure heart like it's I have an incredible group of friends around me that um, the U S open is kind of like a work party, right? Like, so I grew up on a farm um, and it's a part-time farm. It's not the main business. So like we bale hay and we pick corn and we do all this stuff and it's all based on like what I call friend labor. So like everybody shows up because it's like a good time, you know, nobody's going to yell at you or tell you what to do, but it's like the satisfaction of building something good. You know, when, all my dad's friends show up and 
we put 2000 bales of hay in the barn on a weekend and it's like really satisfying. It's the best tasting beer you'll ever drink after that. Right. <laughs> and the U S open is super similar to that in that, like everybody is just really interested in, in creating something fun and, and good. And it's, it's, um, that's like the fuel that keeps it going. Um, and it's interesting. I think a lot of people don't know that because they just see the glitz of the money and, and the names that come, um, in 2017, we relaunched at mountain Creek, which was magical. Like it was crazy. That was, um, probably like top five moments of my life. Um, when we, we, I, first of all, thank you, mountain Creek, That that place has taken ch- so many chances with me. And the, um, Hugh Reynolds was, uh, was instrumental in that and Bill Benyon. They let me bring this event back. They, we're going through a major corporate issue. They were switching hands and I basically was given like just kind of the reins to do whatever we wanted with the U S open. It was really nice. We built this super fun track, a bunch of, of, of big name pros came to it. Um, some brands jumped in and helped me figure out how to put up the, the, the prize purse. It was 5k to the winner that year. And Nico coming across that line and beating um, Aaron out of the hot seat. Aaron Gwynn was with Nico's whole family there. His grandparents were there. The weather was like perfect. There was, it was just like electricity. Right. And that was, that was it. It was like official, like, all right, the U S open is back. And everybody was so excited. And um, then immediately mountain Creek is like, switching hands and we can't stay there. It's like, Oh my gosh. So we, we, um, went up to Killington where I have relationships there because I've run national races for them before we moved the U S open there in 2018. That race was really fun. Um, the track was interesting. It was huge. Nico won actually with a 454, which is absurdly long. There was people with seven minute times. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. Rob Warner was at that race. Um, and really some funny, I could send you some really funny commentary and side notes that came out of that with that track because it was eating people alive. Like there's a video called us open glory hole on, on YouTube. And it's like a, it's like a one minute video of people all crashing in the exact same mud hole. Um, but that, that event went off. It was great. Um, we had, some really good response from, from different riders around the world. Like Bernard Kerr was there, Wind masters, like lots of big names showed up for that one too. And then, um, some really interesting stuff went down that year between us and the UCI. So we were still fiercely unsanctioned at that point. Uh, we can touch on that if you want, but the event went great. And then Killington took on a huge capital expenditure, uh, capital expense project and completely tore up the entire base area and lodge and could not accommodate us for 2019, even though we, uh-huh. had, we had never planned to leave. Killington didn't really want us to leave, but it just couldn't work. Somehow, um, I had connections in California and mammoth. We wanted to move to mammoth. So I flew out there like two days before Christmas, trying to get this venue locked in. When we found out we couldn't stay at Killington, we worked with mammoth. We thought we were going to be at mammoth. Um, and a couple months go by and the management and mammoth basically said like, we can't do this because we are at the time they were trying, they were going for year round skiing. They thought that they could, they could invest in, in this glacier they were building up at their high altitude. 
So they sent us to Snow Summit, which was their sister mountain owned by the same company. And we didn't really know. I didn't know much about Snow Summit. I'd never been there. Um, but it's similar. It's kind of like the Mountain Creek of the West Coast, right? Like it's near a city. It's not huge, but it's got a ton of grit and a ton of heart. And the, the people that are local love it. And they have good jumps. So we, <laughs> we wound like up there in 29. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we wound up there in, they're very similar, actually. The mountains are super similar. Um, we wound up there in 2019. We had a three-year deal with the city of Big Bear to be there through 2021. Um, 2019 was awesome. It was great. Being in California is interesting. Like, you know, Tyler Berriman, Twitch, all these huge moto name riders are there. Axel Hodges. I'm pretty sure Pink was there, the singer. Um, no all sorts. Yeah. I mean, they all live right there. They're all into action sports and they like mountain biking. So uh -huh. that part of it was really cool. And the resort was great. The build team there is amazing. Like if I asked them to build me a loop-de-loop -loop out of dirt, they would do it. Like they want to do anything you ask. Like they're stoked to build. Um, but then in 2020 COVID hit, so we just put it on pause 2021, we come back and we are like full throttle. This, this event is going to be amazing. And then like three weeks before the race, they close the whole national park that it's located in for fire, forest fires. And that was, that was a tough pill that, that one hurt me really, really bad financially. Um, you know, something maybe people don't realize is like, I'm a small business. I own and operate the U S open out of my business and it's a huge risk. And that's not just me. I mean, that's all events. Some of them are spread over larger companies or more people, but just kind of the nature of the structure of this. It's like, I kind of take it square on the chin when something like that happens. Um, so that was tough. Um, <clears throat> and then when it came time to figure out what we were going to do, I sat down with the people from, from snow summit and big bear and just a, a great group of people. Like I love it. I still want to hold another event there and I'm hoping we can bring a national race there, a springtime race there in the future. Um, but we all looked at the history of what's been happening with the forest fires and the climate and knowing that we needed to be in September with our date, we just kind of came to a mutual decision that like it, there was a great chance it wasn't going to work. Um, and, and that was a good happened. idea because it, it, this year that would have happened again, right? Yes. And what's even crazier, Nico, is something we didn't really talk about. But um, in 2020, when we were canceled for COVID, that park was also closed for wildfires. So, like, it just it's just become this thing. Like, the National Park Service is really clamping down in September because it's so dry. That park gets so many visits, and so they just close it. So even if there's not a fire happening, this year, granted, there was fire happening. But the two years prior, they were just closing it to avoid um, uh, a forest fire so it didn't stretch resources. And people are like, well, it's the U.S. Open of Mountain Biking. You should get an exception. They should give you like a permit. It's like the federal government doesn't give a crap about the U.S. Open of Mountain Biking, and they should not either. Their, their job is people's safety and protecting the forest. So... Um, Killington and Powder Corp, the parent company, um, had started conversations with us to try to get me to do an event there. And they were courting us to bring the U.S. Open back. So it worked out. It was just kind of interesting timing. It was good. And we um, you know, quickly made a, an arrangement with Killington to move the event back here for this year.
Nice. Well, yeah, let's talk about this year's event. And um, Nico, maybe you can start off by talking us through the track there because obviously you've raced there numerous times before, but what was this year's US Open track like? Yeah, so this year's track was different than the 2018 US Open that was Killington. Um, We raced on this part of the mountain. Killington's a huge ski resort with multiple different mountains within their resort and when we raced in 2018 we were on the k1 gondola which is the biggest peak and as clay said that track was gnarly it was mainly fresh built for that race but it was so long it had a really flat section in the middle really gnarly at the top flat in the middle and then gnarly again at the bottom and it was interesting because like you were it almost felt like a like you you definitely wanted a downhill bike but an enduro stage with a downhill bike like how physical it was you would like sprint this flat section in the middle like a minute sprint and then just drop into the steepest gnarliest like bottom of leo gang wood section and <laughs> it was like it was, two it was like two separate downhill tracks with a connector in the middle right like so it was like <laughs> so sick at the top and it was steep and rocky then it was like a cross-country race and then it was gnarly at the bottom yeah it was wild yeah, I felt like at that time, like it suited me so well because I was really strong and fit for the pedaling and I was really good at riding mud. So it was like the two things that I was good at. And, um, anyway, it was, it was a really gnarly course and definitely very different from the one we raced this year. Um, as Clay said, they were doing a lot of work on the mountain and I, I think they're still working on the base area at the K1. So we were down on Ramshead mountain, which is, um, just another lift within the ski resort and that's where most of the trails in the bike park are on like most of the fun jump lines and the chairlift there is shorter but quicker and um it's kind of where the majority of the the killington bike park is so we actually raced a course here in 2016 and 17 for one of the national races um trail trails called gold skull it's um it's a pretty fun track it's I thought it was clay and I talked about it a lot before the race. It's definitely not a gnarly course, like the one that we raced in 2018 or especially coming from Val de Sol two weeks ago, like this thing was pretty mellow, but I think it was really good because nobody wanted to come to this last race of the year. That was going to be, yeah, really competitive, a lot of prize money on the line, but still a, a fun race. Um, not as high stress as a world cup. And, as Clay said, some of the U.S. Open vibe is somewhat of an after party so for the season. Um, so racing a course that was challenging but not super gnarly was, I thought, perfect for the last race. Um, this track was a little more flat than most of the stuff we race. You had to carry speed a lot of places. There wasn't a ton of hard braking. Um, but there was a ton of line choice for a pretty mellow course. They did a really good job this year of going through and, and just making it way wider so that there was insides outsides in every turn. There was probably three lines and on course walk, uh, I was scratching my head about which one to take, um, with, with some <laughs> that of the, was our goal. Yeah. With some of the new options. And I think that was a really fun challenge was like, this course wasn't going to kill you. You could push really hard on it but you had to be creative with the lines and because it wasn't so gnarly, the times were going to be super tight. So it made for a competitive, challenging race that wasn't just, um, who was willing to take the most risk. You had to be calculated and, um, 
I thought it, it was really cool. They built some new jumps on the track. It was really fun. Um, and yeah, it was a perfect race for the mix of us amateurs and semi pro riders mixing it up with the open and then us world cup pro guys coming in and racing on it as well. And, it, and it's interesting to note too, Nico, as you say that, that, um, I think a lot of guys underestimated it. I mean, we had what three or four big names go down in finals, like crash in finals, which was really interesting considering that people were like, ah, this track's a cakewalk, you know, at speed, nothing's a cakewalk because everybody's going to go a little faster if you don't. Yeah. It's a lot of times those easier tracks are actually harder to race because you have to work for every little 10th you can find when there's not something so big to separate you. Like the track in 2018 was like, so gnarly that you just had to man up and and like get through these sections whereas this one you're like <laughs> i walk the track three times like looking for tens of a second here and there and um and yeah it, it was it, challenging yeah and it's 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 really interesting chris because we have a couple things one we want it to be fun um which is why we build like jumps like mike buffard from from killington here built these jumps that like the pros were loving because they could go in practice and pop and do big whips for the Instagram. And then in race runs, they could stay low. And we did keep the track really fun, but you know, kind of the backstory of that is we also need to run a ton of amateurs down it. So because of the current format and we're looking at how we're going to change that format in the future, but it kind of serves a purpose as being like a all comers track like everybody can ride it like if we tried to hold the u.s open on the valdisol world cup track like i'd be out of business in one year because <laughs> it would be impossible right nico like we couldn't even imagine doing that no yeah yeah this was this was like i said perfect because it was more challenging the faster you wanted to go on it and yeah those jumps were so fun the the way that they build jumps at killington like all the jumps there are so sick and to put two right left hip on the racetrack with like a flat loose drifting corner in between it's so cool like it, <laughs> i got I hell love, for that people were mad at me it was hard like i could see how some of the amateur riders had trouble to get the speed coming into that jump but for for us as pros like you you rarely get to ride a jump like that and then hit just a raw loose flat turn and like drift into another jump like that. Like most trail building is like all one flavor. If you, like the jump trails all smooth and the racetracks all raw. So this was pretty cool to have a, a good balance. Yeah. And the track, so fun is the goal, like hundred <clears throat> percent fun is the goal. And this track was, I worked with Rosie who was our track manager this year in 2016 and 17. He and I ran the national races on this track and he built it and we knew that it needed some updating to be faster. Cause like Nico said, it's, it's flat. So like we had to straighten out turns. We added a few new straight loam sections, um, just to really increase the speed, which I think we did cause it, the average speed was probably pretty high in some of those sections. Um, and then, you know, uh, the bike park terrain, terrain park manager here, his name's Taylor Zink. And he kind of oversaw this project with me. He and I walked that trail, it's got to be 50 times since last fall, just picking like what trees can we, can we route around? Where are we going to go with this? How are we going to make? And the whole thing was like, how do we make guys like Nico and Dakota and Luca happy with a track and have fun on it, but still send the amateurs down. So it is, it is a pretty big challenge. Um, and then that section he's talking about, we, we built these 
the the normal bike park 365 trail has this crazy like wooden on off in it and we knew that that would be dangerous so we routed out of the woods and into the middle of the ski slope and we had like you know 100 probably 200 yards of open ski slope and so we worked with with mike buffard from killington the machine operator and we laid out these two hips and then as the guys started there's probably what would you say nico like it's got to be almost 100 yards between them and there's just this brutally raw rock section right in the middle of it and the bike park guys are used to building trails for you know bike park and they they go over there with the machine and they start tearing it apart and we're like no 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 no, leave that it's we don't want to build a bike park jump trail so we left it and we did a test race um before the u.s open i got hell from amateurs there's there's memes on the internet about how difficult that second jump is because everybody looks like a hero on the first jump but unless you're willing to let off the brakes and let it eat through a rough section you can't clear the second one so like it definitely um made you earn it which is good because on a track where everybody was underestimating the the, the skill required to do well on it it was like this hidden little like nugget of of just frustration for a lot of riders Awesome. Yeah, it's definitely good to have challenge and, and an interesting track by the sounds of things. And you had a super good turnout again, uh, plenty of people from all over, lots of high level riders there. Um, Nico, pretty sharp competition at the, uh, at the top end of the elite field. Hey. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Dakota riding really well, obviously coming off of podium of Val Sol. Luca was really motivated to do the race cause he missed a good chunk of the middle of the season. And then we had the syndicate come, uh, unfortunately Greg injured and Laurie, um, wasn't able to make it with his broken wrist, but, uh, Jackson was there. Um, the GT factory team was there racing and then, yeah, a ton of American guys that this is like the biggest race on their calendar. So, um, it was cool to have such a competitive race, uh, here on the East coast in the U S. Um, I think a lot of the U.S. racers are stoked to have something like this to be able to compete in and see these guys ride in person, compare their time. I think that's one of the coolest things about it is everybody ran the same course and they could see, okay, Dakota got third at the last World Cup. How did I stack up compared to him? There's not a lot of sports where you can go and compete against the best dudes. For sure, man. How was your how was your race run? It was, it, it was a little messy. It was, uh, we got a little rain like coming in right before the, <laughs> the final. Um, it was funny. Clay and I were talking about this the night before to try to tighten up the race to get it done. Cause it said the rain was forecasted to start at two and running downhill Southeast and other races over the years, like thunderstorms in the mountains from two to five is super common. So I had a, a page out of my book about okay how do we get the race done by two tighten up the practice in the morning run 30 second gaps and do all the podiums after and when we laid out the start list dakota was supposed to drop at 159 so it was like perfect we'll get the race in <laughs> hopefully the rain core operates and then unfortunately there was an injury in the women's the pro women's race and we had to get a couple girls had to do reruns so we were delayed 20 minutes and of course sitting on the trainer two o'clock when we were supposed to be done started raining. So, um, it wasn't too bad, but it was almost like when it just lightly rains like that, it's like worse because you it's, it's some places it didn't get through the trees, some places it did, and it's hard to predict. 
so I think for, yeah, the last 10 of us, um, it, it was definitely a, a little bit of a roll of the dice. And I had a couple sketchy moments in my race run, as I'm sure the other guys did. Um, but yeah, I was happy enough to get on the podium. That was, um, that was my goal for the weekend with so many fast guys there. Um, I think probably the t- everybody there could say they could have had a little cleaner run in those conditions, but I was happy enough with it. it I, so Chris, um, a tradition for me at the U S open is my wife and I, like we bust, we work so hard all weekend and, um, we try to cut out and go to the top and walk the course during the open race. And so I was just like barely got up there in time and like Nico and Dak and Jackson, all these guys are on their trainers up at the top. And I could just hear this conversation going about how basically they're like, thanks mother nature. You know, some, some not pro rider is about to make a lot of money today. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, thankfully, thankfully we didn't have too much impact um, it did take some riders out, some really good riders crashed in the one rock section. Um, and, uh, Dakota came across the line and within 90 seconds, the skies opened up. So like he, he definitely would not have had that win if, if that race had gotten delayed any longer. And Nico's right. Like I have him and, and our new, um, race director, competition director for the U S open Adam Morse, who's a long time EWS and, and pro U S downhiller who came on board this year to help us. I don't have time with all the other stuff I have to do to be so deeply involved in the mechanics of all the things with the race. And, um, he and Nico worked on that, that schedule change. And I'm so grateful they did that. It it would have been such a different outcome if, if those levers hadn't been pulled. So it was good. Good stuff, man. And so, yeah, Dylan Maples in fifth, Nico sliding into fourth, Luca second, Dakota first, but there's a name, uh, that I've not heard before in third, Asa Vermette. Yeah, he's uh what, what do we know about this guy? <laughs> he's a 15-year-old kid who's been absolutely charging this year. I first noticed him at Mountain Creek National in May where he set the I think it was the third fastest time in seating and then was right up there again in finals. Um he's from Durango, Colorado, so I didn't know the kid, never heard of him until that race and then started following along, watching his results. Um Clay got to chance to meet him, I think that weekend and, and knows the family a little better and thought it'd be a great idea for me to do the course preview with him this weekend because I was the last winner in Killington and he was the youngest kid in the race. And I got to meet him for that. Just like we organized the time to meet at the, at the chairlift and go up and I introduced myself and rode the lift with him, got to chat with him a little bit. And he's just a, just a kid that's so stoked to be there riding and racing and happy and, charging on the bike as well um i was joking around when i dropped in like oh let's see if i can keep up with him and it was tough like the kid was ripping in that (laughs) course preview run and um and then i told him like hey man like this is awesome you signed up for open not a lot of kids would like most would try to race the the junior expert category but you're fast enough. Like, I think if you do a a run, like you just did, you get top 10. And if you do a really good run and clean run, you can get top five and the dude got third. He beat me by a second. I was, uh, I was stoked to come across the line and see him like of anybody that was going to beat me. I was like, man, that's awesome. The kid is, the kid's charging and he earned it. And, um, yeah, it's cool to see kids like that coming 
up through the U.S. ranks, and I think the future is bright for us with uh, with Asa. Yeah, and he's Chris. He's he's kind of put together a little different. Like that kid has, he really has his head together on a race, which is probably the main difference, I guess, between him and other fifteen year olds. Um, we've got a good family structure, and as Nico said, like I do know them a little bit. Um, I've kind of taken interest in Asa um, this year as we've gotten to know each other. And I suggested to his dad, I said, he should race the open class. I mean, I think that he could make a really big splash. And um, he was super hesitant to do it. He he didn't necessarily, because it's, Nico grew up with the US Open, so he understood it, but Asa didn't. So now it's like trying to understand it. And right up till, right up till the first practice, they were like, should we switch back? Should we do this? You know, I said, I'd stick with it, man. Like, I think that. I think this will be really good, really good for you. Like, I think that you got it. And, um, we were like blown away. I, I was, my thought was like, yeah, if he gets top 10, that'd be awesome. And then see him on the podium was pretty wild. Like he was, yeah. he was gushing. Like it was a big day for that kid. I couldn't be more happier. Um, the one thing I got to say is he's not actually the youngest open class competitor. I was misspoken on that. Um, and I had to reel that back in. We had, uh, Aletha Ostgard, who's 14 in the women's open. And she is now the youngest open class U S open competitor. So in the women's versus the men, he is definitely the youngest man, man ever. So, Fair um, play. and Aletha also took third behind Jill Kittner and Nina Hoffman, which, uh, I mean, that's an insane bunch of names to be in with, with Katie Skelton in fourth and Maisie Hayden in fifth as well. A hundred percent. And and Aletha, I actually, so it's funny, I misspoke about that because I'm just not familiar with her um, as much. And I didn't realize she was so young. And then the other thing, uh, my my US Open media team, we do um, we do collab reels on Instagram, slow, these slow-mo quick reels with each of the top qualifiers. And they accidentally used her sister, clips of her sister who was racing instead of her. So not only did I miss that she was the youngest, they all, we also used like the wrong clip. So shout out to Aletha. Sorry for that. And we have a new um, reel that we we had 9.5 put together for you that we're going to post with you this week. So sorry. Good stuff. <laughs> it's awesome work. Yeah, it's amazing to see these young, young talented riders coming up. And there was, there was another young rider that was taking part who uh, has had a lot of talk about him this season, Jackson Goldston. His first race uh, in elite, that isn't hardline. Hardline's a bit of a different beast, I would say. Um, kind of surprising to see Jackson in eleventh place. Nico, any insight there? Was he just enjoying himself and having a chill week? No, I think he he definitely crashed in his final run. Um, if you look at his splits, I think he was first at the first two splits, so he was going for it. Um, definitely motivated, but uh, yeah, just like I said with the rain, it was it was tricky and um, got caught out there. So. I think I think that's like what the U.S. Open he, is about. He definitely. Is, go ahead. I would say he definitely crashed. Um, he actually has a video of it in his Instagram. I'm pretty sure that he and Dante Silva and Ethan Craig all crashed in the same spot, which is that weird off-camber Rudy section after the Rock Garden. Yeah, he got thumped that, pretty good. Like he was going fast. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a tough section, and it was in the woods, but a little bit less tree cover, so it was hard to tell how slick it was coming into that final run. Um, but guys like Asa and, and um, the, the junior girl that got third is like so cool that 
in the US Open, they have this format that they can sign up and race against the best dudes. There's not like we always on the podcast, we talk about how would the juniors have stacked up in the elite race? Um, It was hours earlier. They weren't in the same racing at the same time. But this is an event where anybody can come and see where they stack up and you got to qualify through to the final. And and if you do that, like, and you're fast enough, you can, you can race at the same time as the, as the best pros. It is, it is the point. It, it makes me so happy to see it working, you know? Yeah. But, it's really cool. Really cool to see riders in the mix all together like that. And you had some, uh, some other kind of team staff finding their way onto the start list as well, which was cool to see. So Lee Huskinson, who's Laurie Greenland's mechanic, stood in for for Laurie and took 23rd, which is a, a solid effort. Some up-and-coming talent called Steve Pete had a bit of a go <laughs> in uh, in 27th. That's awesome to see Pete racing. Walker Shaw, who's the union team manager in uh, 14th. Uh, so yeah, it's cool, man. How do you how do you attract all these people to come and have a go? What's the what's the thinking behind it? Um well with stuff like that we want more of that like the the tradition and and things like that at the US Open are fun. We have the ability to let brand partners kind of do what they want. We are very we run a tight loose program. Like we we try to be really tight with the racing and we have partners like Fox Racing and <clears throat> um sorry, like Fox Racing, the state of Vermont, Red Bull, um 510 and a few others that really give us the financial ability to pay this prize purse. And then within that structure, we try to give brands the opportunity to basically activate how they want and do what they want and the freedom to use it as a bit of a party for their people. Something they don't get at a UCI World Cup because everything's so regulated and so structured and there's more pressure on the riders there. Um, although I will say that this money is starting to put pressure on the riders. I noticed, I saw that actually in Jackson Goldstone, who was extremely frustrated with his crash. Um, but what, the, how much did he miss out on them? What's first place in the open 15,000 USD. All right. So I think it's almost three times a world cup win now. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good day's work. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, so the structure of the U S open is, is based upon, relationships with good brand partners that believe in what we're doing and then want to use it for themselves to, to, as a platform for their company. So Fox, for instance, they bring, you know, in people and it's going to be a race, but it's going to be a good time. And so they have a lot of their staff there, you know, and they start this whiskey cup idea at the bar. You know, I got a text that at one, I was like one thirty in the morning. I got a text from Austin Hoover, the global uh, sports marketing manager for Fox. And he's like, Clay, I need to add these people to the start list. We're doing a, we're doing a whiskey cup. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Okay. So luckily registration was still open at that point. Cause we had to close registration, um, during the week. We've never had to do that before we sold out for downhillers. I know a lot of people were upset, but we literally hit capacity. We couldn't get that many people down the hill anymore. And it's never happened, never happened to us. So I was pretty surprised, but, um, he, he, put together this whiskey cup and it was, it was Steve Pete and Walker and, and those other riders. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's the stuff that like, that's the stuff that keeps those brands so happy and so excited. And you know, they can never do that at a world cup or anything else. So we love having that, you know, and even as the race grows, we want to protect that part of it. Um, like even just my team, like, you know, like I said, this group of 
friends that come together and, and do this, this project with me every year, we make it a good time. You know what I mean? We have like a team party almost every night with dinner at the condo and, and try to make sure everybody's having good time. It's, it just has to be that way because, um, it's race, it's bike racing, right? Like it's, it's supposed to be fun and definitely it's our, it's our hook. It's what we do. I thought it was so cool to see Lee and, and Steve racing. Like Husky was ripping on the track. I saw him come past me when I was stopped, <laughs> taking a break, looking at a line. And I was like, dude, I didn't know how new, I didn't know how, I didn't know that he knew how to ride that fast. Like he was absolutely shredding. Um, and then, and then to see PD out there as well, it was so cool. I was, uh, he looked, he looked a little bit tired on the bike when he came to the finish. I was joking with him. That I was like, man, I wanted to see, uh, a Canberra finish sprint out of you coming down to the finish line. And, uh, he was like, oh no, I just wasn't, wasn't happy with my run. So I cruised in, but, uh, yeah, it was awesome to see all those guys. Like how often do you get to see Steve Pete in full gear racing a race? anymore pretty special and i think it's gonna go i think this is gonna go further because um there's always been a murmur of an of a mechanics class at the u.s open and my take is this you know just like most things like the way i manage the whole thing is i just love to get like good people and give everybody enough freedom to bring their creative touch to it as long as it works you know like and it makes sense and so I always have been saying like John Hall from intense has just been kind of talking about it for a few years. And I was like, well, put it together, get a few mechanics. Like I'm not doing it for one person, but get five of you and we'll, we'll run this class. And this year it happened. Um, and I know he regretted not being in it. He wasn't set up to be in it this year, but I think next year he'll be in it. Excellent. Good stuff, man. And you mentioned earlier on that the event kind of started out like being pretty punk. And I think that fitted the scene at the time for sure. And it's definitely moved on and changed and still captures that fun party vibe, but you're doing a lot for, you know, bringing people into the sport. I wanted you to talk a little bit about some of the other sides to the the racing there. So you have the next gen category, which seems to cater huge amount for like really young age groups and upwards and also the adaptive racing, which we don't really see much of over here in the UK. So I'm kind of keen to hear it you know, your take on those a bit. Yeah. Let me just give you one piece first. Uh, I stopped before when I was in my epic monologue about the U S open, you have to stop me sometimes. I'll talk for hours about it, but the, um, the 2018 U S open, we were still unsanctioned and, um, the UCI came down on us hard. It was like three days before the race. We had all these big name pros, the intense factory team, YT pivot, uh, GT are all in Vermont for the U S open and UCI puts out what they call, what do they call them? Nico communiques. Yeah. And it said any, um, any registered UCI world cup athlete that races the U S open may be banned from racing worlds. Wow. Because we were unsanctioned and it was, it was really harsh. It was pretty, um, it was hard for me to stay friends with the UCI. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> and, <Fair. clears throat> um, there's a guy named Chuck Hodge, who is the USA cycling events director. I called him at like 11 o'clock at night. I had no idea what to do. UCI had put this contract in front of me and they said that I needed to make it a UCI race. And the fine print in the UCI contract says, you know, they don't sanction an open class race. So they don't that, you know, that's something like I'd mentioned, like now I've been in conversations with them as how we can align and, and they could create a space for us. But, um, at that time there was no discussions. 
there was no opportunity. And it was like, you know, my reputation is built on this event and having all these big names here. And I know these factory teams invested, you know, tens and tens of thousands of dollars of travel on the line. And we didn't, it was horrible. I had no idea what to do. I was like sick to my stomach. And I called Chuck and he answered his phone and he said, I already told them to get out of my country. I got this one. And, and I, and I was like, uh, what? And he goes, you're USA cycling sanctioned now. And I said, okay, awesome. Um, let's, let's be partners. <laughs> and so, um, <clears throat> because what the UCI failed to mention was that they can't regulate a nationally sanctioned event. And we were not even nationally sanctioned at that point. So we, um, we did all the paperwork and we filled out the form and we paid the money and we became a USA cycling event and USA cycling has the freedom to do things, you know, how they want with, with the structure so they can have open classes. And, um, it's really been cool since then because I've worked with them on other stuff and, and granted everything's not perfect, but we're trying to create a much better system. Um, and the past couple of years have been really tough because they have staffing issues and everything, but, there is a really good relationship there. We also have a good relationship with the UCI now, and we are working to be aligned with everybody, but we're not willing to give up our principles. Like it, the US Open has to be the US Open. And I would go back to being unsanctioned, punk rock, 30 pack of beer on the tailgate of my truck. Just I'll, I'll run the timing with a stopwatch and pay my own personal thousand dollars to Nico to win it. Like that's what we would go back to if we had to give up our principles. Um, so fast forward the you know the couple of years since then we've really worked to do things that we feel will elevate the whole sport especially in the US um next gen racing is one of them we are trying to create categories for kids under 15 because there's not really a lot of categories in USA <clears throat> in USA racing under 15 so we now have a separate track where we run the novice kids which is like cat 3 then we um integrate the advanced U15 kids into the main race and we have age brackets for them. And this year, something really special happened. We worked with USA cycling to create the first ever cat one, 11, 12 and cat one, 13, 14 age groups, because those kids were all in one group and the skill level was so like, so vast from, mm -hmm. from the fastest kids to the slowest kids. And it was getting discouraging on both ends. The fast kids were getting discouraged because they had nowhere to go and they were getting caught up with the slower kids in practice, not, not slower kids, but more beginner kids. And then we were getting a barrier to entry. Now kids didn't want to come out to race because why would I want to go jump in a class with that kid? Who's obviously a minute faster than me. You know, it, it really was inhibiting. So we pulled out the fast kids. We put them in a cat one group for the first time ever. It was awesome. It worked so well. And it's like definitely one of the best accomplishments of the U S open this year. Um, on the adaptive side, it's interesting. Um, I know a few adaptive riders. I know they're interested in racing, but I'm not an expert. Like I, it's not, that's not my field. And like I said, like everything with the U S open, the goal is to find someone who, who wants to take ownership in the event, like Adam Morris, our race director and, and give them freedom. And, um, so we worked with Vermont adaptive, which is a local adaptive association, and they wanted to make this happen. They pulled in a few adaptive riders that are looking to actually have races. A lot of mm -hmm. events will have adaptive jam sessions and this. And 
so we we just did it. I I I don't know if we did it right. Um, I imagine there's a ton to be learned. It's so new, but it really worked well. Um, the riders were happy. We put them on a, a track that was not a flow track. I mean, it was aggressive. It was rocks. It was it was not easy. And my goal with that, I had a good conversation with with the guys on the podium afterwards, and they're going to work to try to form some sort of a racing association that tries to tell guys in my position, like, this is what we do. These are the categories. This is the type of track we're looking for, similar to what we have in, in, you know, normal across the board mountain biking with the sanctioning bodies where there's a framework and a structure and you know what to do. So the adaptive thing is that's evolving. Um, we're happy to be on the forefront of it and we're really happy to give those guys um, a chance to shine, but it's definitely, um, new and raw and not perfect yet. For sure. Good stuff for getting stuck in, man. It's awesome to see all that work you're putting into not just the US scene, but mountain biking in general. So I'm guessing there's big plans for the future. Is there much you can kind of talk about? Like, Where do you see the US Open going? Ooh, yeah. So <clears throat> um, we're always trying to push push things up. Um, growing the prize purse is really important to me. Like I kind of told you before we started this this podcast, before we were recording, like monetizing the sport of mountain biking, I'm kind of one of the players in the game that has to be working on that because I'm in a position to transfer money into riders' hands, into athletes' hands and create um, just a, a, just a rising tide for the whole industry. So um, that's always always a hallmark of the US Open. How can we continue to push the prize purse up and make, make mountain biking more comparable to other sports as far as prize purse go and what an athlete can win? Um, from a structure standpoint, it's getting, it's getting interesting. Um, running everybody on the same track, this format where anybody could sign up. Um, we may in the future look to go to more of a, a longer format for the event. And I kind of say it's like Loretta Lynn's of motocross meets us open of golf. And the beginning of the week is, you know, more based on the amateurs on, on the, say on the track we're on now, the semi easier track. Um, and the kids racing and everything. And then you can qualify in to the, to the main U S open downhill, which will happen at the end of the week. And that's when guys like Nico and the guys that don't need to go through the qualifying process come in much like, you know, the U S open of golf where anybody can make it to the big show at the end, but you can't just show up and sign up that day and jump right out there with the pros. It's a process you have to go through earlier. So I guess that uh -huh. that's kind of, as it grows, that's a, a, a place we're going to have to go with this is kind of lengthen the pipeline, I guess, of how you get into the U S open downhill final. Um, I don't know if we're there yet for 23, but maybe by 24, it may be that way. And then beyond that, you know, we are always entertaining conversations of like, for instance, Red Bull TV or, or some other, um, agency of that wants, you know, we have a lot of conversations. There's a lot of people kicking the tires. The U S open is an interesting property that, um, has potential to have TV coverage in the near future. So that's another, another avenue we're looking at, but it's just hard because we have to remember a couple things. One, it's not easy to get the finances together to run a race like this. So we have to be careful not to overpromise. um, which, you know, something I learned from earlier, the stories or earlier parts of my life. And then, um, secondly, like we don't want to compromise on our principles. We're, we're more interested in a longer, slower growth path to be the U S open as opposed to 
changing what we are just to chase TV coverage or do this or do that. So good stuff, man. But changes will have to happen. For sure. And it's awesome to see what you guys have created. It's obviously an, an amazing event. People like Nico are turning up year in, year out and supporting it. So yeah, congratulations. And hopefully we get a nice uninterrupted chunk of years where you can build and grow and, <clears throat> and keep this thing going. But so, yeah. so, so sorry to interrupt, but I just got to drop this quote. Somebody who works on my team, Corey, developed this phrase this, this past week when we were all working, you know, 18 hour days. Um, and it's the U S open the first time for the third time. Cause this is literally the third time we've had to relaunch the U S open. So, um, that is not lost. We think about it all day, every day, like consistency. If we can be in the same venue two years in a row, if we can just get some, some momentum and track record going and create make it easier for the teams and the athletes and the industry to plan around the U S open. Like we're really lucky that everybody still loves the U S open that much and is willing to move across the country with us and take years off and take years on and everything. But ultimately, if we could have five years of just straight, consistent events growth every year, um, I think that's when, like, that's when the rubber really will hit the road. I mean, that's what, that's what it got to in 2006 when I started, it was like the, I guess, fourth or fifth year of it. And to see it grow to having all those top riders when there was year after year of momentum, it was really big in the late two thousands. And, uh, I think if you can do that again, get those years logged and see it grow and have Killington behind it, it'll be, uh, it'll be back there to the same spot or even bigger. Yeah. And the, the resort, the, the venue is the key. Um, and Killington has incredible, um, terrain. Like Nico said, there's three different peaks that run. So like we had 35 people, 3,500 people buying lift tickets and riding, but you can still run a race because it's so big and, and vast. Um, so it's really cool to build this thing out in a venue where we can at the same time invite spectators to bring their bikes. And that's one critical difference between the US Open and a World Cup is like, don't come to watch the US Open without bringing your bike. Take laps because there's going to be tons of big names out shredding the jump laps and you might ride the chairlift with somebody you follow on Instagram and idolize and all this stuff, but then, you know, lock your bike up and go watch the main race. Like that's, that's our shtick. Like, and to me, like I go to a world cup and like I go to MSA and I don't even take my bike, you know? And so it's, that's a big difference between, between us and a lot of the world cups. Sounds good to me. If people want to find out a bit more then where are the best places for them to look? Um, well, Instagram's, king in the bike industry, right? So US Open MTB on Instagram and then our website, usopen.bike. Um, we do we do have like a little bit of a FOMO issue where, you know, people feel like they miss out because they weren't there and you can't see it all. I get a thousand DMs. Where's the live feed? Where's the live feed? How do I find out? Like, we don't have it. Um, so I would recommend today or tomorrow, a big piece drops on vital MTB. That's going to be deep coverage of the U S open. Jack rice has been grinding the midnight oil, putting that together. Um, and that would be a really good spot to see what happened this year. Awesome. Good stuff, man. Well, it's been super interesting chatting and, uh, hopefully I get to attend one in person at some point in the future, but wish you all the best. Look forward to seeing how the 2023 event goes and where you'll kind of move to from there. But yeah, thanks to both of you for your time and, uh, best of luck for the future. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, that's it for this episode with Nico and Clay. I really hope you've enjoyed it. 
A massive thank you to We Are One Composites for supporting this episode. As a downtime listener, you can get 10% off any Revolution wheel set, including rim only, for the month of September. All you need to do is to head to weareonecomposites.com and use the code DOWNTIMEWHEELING2022 at the checkout. That's downtime with a capital D, no space, followed by the word WHEELING, W-H-E-E-L-I-N-G, no space, then 2022 over at weareonecomposites.com. Head to their site now and check out everything they have to offer. Here's a few other links that might be useful to you too. Downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe so you never miss an episode. Forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some merch. And forward slash EP if you'd like to get your hands on copies of our lovely print project, Downtime EP. As always, spread the word, tell your rider mates and make sure as many people as possible are listening to the show. That's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. <laughs>